As you heard earlier, my name is Andy Jones. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you today. I come from the other side of the mountain, from the illustrious city of Flintstone, Georgia. And so I bring you greetings from that side of things. Uh, my family and I, we worship on uh, Lookout up at Rock Creek Fellowship, which we enjoy a kindred relationship with you all. Um, I was, uh, uh, had a strange timed event yesterday. I found myself uh, reading a copy of the Walker County newspaper from 1916, an edition that dates back over 100 years now, and came across this article that referenced Sheriff Garmony. And I thought, that has to be a relative. So I, I reached out to Hutch and said, please tell me this is your kinfolk. And, and he said, yeah, he, he said, that's my great-great-grandfather. So I'm not Walker County royalty like you have here. I'm just a peasant from Walker County. And the, the Garmonies continue to expand their empire in different ways, even this week, uh, by adding to their fold. So, uh, but it's an honor that you would have me from Walker County uh, here with you today. So we're going to be uh, looking at a passage of scripture that maybe you've heard of before. It relates to one of the famous incidents in the Bible. It's from 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. So if you want to open a Bible or turn on a device and follow along, you can turn there. It's in the Pew Bibles uh, at page 295 if you want to save yourself some time. But as I mentioned, this is one of the more famous... um, One of the more famous chapters in all the Old Testament comes just prior to the passage we're going to be looking at today, and that is the story of David and Bathsheba. But in 2 Samuel 12, in the passage we're going to be considering, we get to see the uh, aftermath of that and how God forces David to reckon with what he's done and to reckon with God himself. And of course, our prayer and hope is that God would do the same thing here uh, in our midst, that uh, we would have to reckon with him and reckon even with what Uh, who we are. And so we're going to be reading the first uh, 13 verses of this chapter. If you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word, starting in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. 
You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Please be seated. So I've maybe like some of you, I've been watching the the British Open a little bit this weekend, the golf tournament across the way. And it reminds me of the greatest moment of my amateur career because my pro career has yet to commence. But I played golf over a decade ago. I played around at, in Raleigh, North Carolina at a golf course called Lonnie Pool. It's the home course of the NC State Wolfpack. And on the fourth hole, I had an event take place that never happened before and never happened since. It's a par four hole, and I hit a great tee shot down the middle, got up to uh, my, my approach shot to the green, took out an eight iron, hit it onto the green, and heard that sound that's unmistakable to a golfer, and that's the sound of your ball going into the cup. And I thought, I think I just eagled this hole. And sure enough, I got up there and verified, and I had witnesses with me. This wasn't one of my other golf stories where nobody was around to actually testify to it. But this actually happened. I eagled that hole. Never happened before. I've never had a hole in one. Never eagled against since. But I can remember so many details about that moment. Even though it's been a decade ago, I can recall the club. I can recall where I was in the fairway. I can recall the pin placement on the green. Because maybe if you're like me, you tend to be able to recall details that you want to recall. (laughs) And you don't recall other details, like the fact that I didn't share with you that the whole previous I had had a triple bogey. (laughs) Because I hit my tee shot into the woods along with my second shot into the woods. I don't like to share the the story about how I I don't think I even broke 90 that round, even though I eagled a hole, (laughs) which takes some talent to do in golf. Because we like to remember things that we like to remember. There are certain details and moments in life we like to keep in the front of our minds, and there are certain details and moments in life we like to put in the back of our minds. And those things in the front, we can recall and celebrate and review, rewind as much as we want. And those things in the back, it's like they they didn't exist. And I I do it all the time. In many, many ways, golf may be just uh, one example But we do this all the time. We do it in relationships, right? We remember things our spouses, our our roommates, our neighbors, our co-workers have done in injustices to us. They're up here in the front. Uh, The injustices we've committed over the time seem to find their way to the back of the mind. (laughs) That we can recall the wrongs done to us much more quickly than the wrongs done by us. We all have what you might want to call selective memory in life. We choose to remember things, some things more vividly, and other things we like to bury. 
And of course, this morning in the passage that we heard read, God comes to David and jogs his memory. That God comes to David and forces him to reckon with something that he would like to keep in the back of his mind and brings it right there to the front for him to have to look at. By the way, isn't that an interesting phrase that we use in English? Uh, Jog your memory. It doesn't actually make sense if you think about it, but I, I did some research and discovered that the word jog has more than one meaning. Jog is not just uh, the running exercise, but uh, in English, jog can mean to, uh, to shake something, to nudge it, to give it a, a little oomph. And that's what God is doing here in 2 Samuel 12, that God is jogging, he's shaking David's memory, and he's forcing David to reckon with the wrong that he has done. And of course, the good news that we come across in this passage is that even though this is David's worst moment, there is still good news for him. It's the good news of verse 13, those last words we heard, which is, you're not going to die. That even though David starts out in this passage by saying, the person who did this thing deserves to die. That was David's own indictment, own verdict on what should happen. That's not God's verdict. God's verdict is, you did this, but you're not going to die. That God confronts David, not just with bad news about what he's done, but God also confronts David with the good news about how God is going to interact with him and deal with him because of what he's done. And the wonderful truth that God forces us to think about this morning is really that we can be fully known and yet fully loved by God. And that's difficult for us to believe. It's why we like to choose to keep certain things back here. Because we're afraid if they're up here, they'll be known. But God shows us, He shows David, that we can be fully known by God and fully loved by God. That we discover that truth of Romans 6 that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage really with two things in mind. And that teaches us how to know who we are. And secondly, it teaches us to know who God is. It teaches us something about knowing who we are, and it teaches us something about knowing who God is. So let's think about that first one. What does this passage teach us about knowing who we are? What does this passage teach us about the person we have to look at in the mirror every morning? Well, it teaches us that, that self-awareness is very elusive, especially when it comes to our own shortcomings, our own failures. That self-awareness is not easy to come by. That it's much, it's much easier for us to have 20-20 vision about everybody else's wrongdoings than the person we have to look at in the mirror every day, right? Isn't that what we find out about David? He had very clear vision when he thought somebody else was being described, but he had very poor vision uh, when it came to himself. You know, there's a story I read about uh, an Austrian doctor from the mid-1800s. Uh, Ignaz Zimmelweis was his name. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. But Dr. Zimmelweis practiced in a Vienna hospital in the mid-1800s where the mortality rate among women in the maternity ward was 10%. So 
So one out of every ten women were dying as they came to give birth. And he set out to solve this issue. He determined that he was going to rectify this because the rate at other hospitals was much lower. And so he began to try to break down certain variables. So he changed the food that was being fed to these women, but yet the rate continued. He, he changed the ventilation system, and yet the rate continued. He kept trying to change things and change things, but yet he could not get that mortality rate down. And so finally, he decided to venture off to another country, to another hospital who had a lower rate, and, and go see what they were doing. And he was gone for four months, and when he came back, he discovered that during the four months that he was gone, that the mortality rate had gone dramatically down. That he put two and two together. What he didn't realize is that when he was going downstairs in the hospital to do research on cadavers, that he was transferring when he came back up those germs to those women, which was resulting in all of these deaths. And it was because of him that we have what we call modern germ theory and sterilization because of that incident. Now think about that. You're trying to solve all these problems that are out there only to discover through painstaking research that you are actually the problem. And of course, that's exactly what's happening here with David. It's exactly what happens with all of us so often. The problems of the world, the problems in my life are out there. The wrongs are out there. The things that really need to be changed are out there. But of course, through painstaking interaction, uh, we discover, as David did, that so often the wrong is staring at us in the mirror every day. That we, but part of the experience here about knowing who we are is not just coming to self-awareness, but how do you come to this self-awareness? How are you able to see who you really are? And we discover in this passage that you come to see who you really are by listening to God and listening to the people He puts in your life, like Nathan. That in other words, if we're going to come to self-awareness, it isn't necessarily by just sitting there all day in a room by ourselves and, and, and navel-gazing. But what? It's spend time with God Spend time with God's people, and you will come to a holy self-awareness about yourself. You will come to see yourself as you truly are, the things that need to be transformed, changed, sanctified, and atoned for. You know, you do wonder what was going through David's mind even prior to this, between the time of his sin with Bathsheba, where he killed her husband, and then this confrontation. And it's very obvious what we do know what was going on in his mind was that he had pushed the incident deep back into his mind. That it wasn't on the forefront. And we do this same thing. Part of knowing who we are is knowing that when we do sin, when we do things that we know are not in accordance with God's design for our lives or his design for this world, we tend to minimize it and justify it in different ways. David probably told himself, well, I am king, so this is okay, right? I'm God's anointed one, so this is okay. It's not that big of a deal. He, Uriah was at war anyways when he was killed. He was already putting his life at risk, so this is okay. And we have these same mental exercises we do, that when we do things that we know aren't in accordance with God's designs, we find ways to minimize them and to even justify them. By the way, notice that word we'd rather not talk about does come up in this passage. 
And that is that the, in verse 13 especially, that this, what David has done is referred to as sin. You have sinned against the Lord. This, this word that the Bible uses to describe David's actions, of course, is spread throughout the Scripture to describe what it means when we do things that aren't in accord with God's designs for His world. You know, but also knowing, having some self-awareness is realizing that sin is never simple. You know, we have to listen to God, we have to listen to His people, and as we do, we realize that sin is never as simple, even when we come to see sin. So, for instance, with David, yes, he committed adultery, he compounded that by following it up with murder, but of course, even with the adultery, the sin is never as simple, right? He's discontented with what God's provided him. He entertains certain thoughts over a period of time as he gazes out upon this woman. That sin is is never as confined or quantifiable as we like to think, right? There's sequences. There's there's a road, typically a journey, that leads into what becomes a a very identifiable sin. Even with David, uh, sin was not as simple as it may appear. But even when it's not simple, even, even in its simplest form, sin is never clear to the one who actually commits it. Notice in verse 5, it says that David burned with anger against the man who had stolen the ewe lamb. He burned with anger against that man, not realizing at that point yet that Nathan was actually describing him. That sin has this way, like self-awareness, of eluding us. It can, we can easily identify and confess the sins of others. <laughs> if only we had a confessional to do that. <laughs> we could spend all day identifying and confessing what others have done. But the hardest thing is to be able to be honest with ourselves before God about who we are and what we have done. And by the way, friends, part of the good news this morning is that problem is as old as the Bible itself. That even when we look back to Adam and Eve, They had a very hard time coming to terms with who they were and what they had done. It was true for Adam and Eve. It was true for David. It continues to be true for us. Uh, Later this week, I'm actually going to be in Los Angeles, a place where actually our family used to live. And some of you may know by reputation or experience that Los Angeles has what you might call a traffic issue at times. And uh, I have sat on the 405 that used to be part of my commute every day. And I have sat on the 405 and come to know the different hues of red uh, brake lights that exist among car manufacturers. And, and as you sit there and as you stare all day at the brake lights, it's easy to become frustrated at this traffic, right? These people who are in my way and keeping me from getting to where I'm supposed to get to. And then, of course, you realize what? You are traffic right? You are a car that is contributing to the very problem that is frustrating you. You don't just get in traffic, you are traffic. And so it's true, it's easy for us to, to look at our, uh, our relatives, our co-workers, neighbors, friends, and to become, look at the news, and to become frustrated by all the wrong that is going on in this world. It's, it's much harder to see ourselves as part of the traffic going on there, to see ourselves as a contributor to that very wrong. 
So if we're going to come to know who we are, what do we need to do? I said it already, which is spend some time with God. Spend time with God's people. And as you do, this is the way God, these are the instruments that God typically uses to reveal who we are. By spending time with Him through His Word, to spend time with His people in fellowship, community, and the preaching of His Word, this is how God exposes sin to people. You notice the passage begins, even in verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. David doesn't just have, have a a miraculous recollection of what he's done. But what? David comes to this moment because God sent someone into his life to help him see it. And God continues to do that today as God allows us to come in contact with his word and with his people. We need people in our lives who can look us in the eye across the coffee table and say, you are the man. That we desperately need people in our lives who can say that with the authority of God. You, you are the person. You you are the problem here in this particular way. Because we need to be able to reckon with ourselves as to who we are if we're going to enjoy the grace that God offers. Well, that's the first thing. But notice also there's a second thing in here that we want to think about. Not just knowing who we are, but this passage also shows us How we can come to know who God is. How we can come to know who God is. You know, to me, the most amazing thing in all this passage is that the same God who thunders those words through Nathan to David, you are the man, is the same exact God who a few verses later will say to David through Nathan, you will not die. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. That if you want to know who God is, that one of the reasons we keep our our sins in the back of our mind is because we fear that He will reject us, that others will reject us, that they really know who we are, right? But in this passage, we learn that the God of the Bible is a God who fully knows us and yet fully loves us. It's hard to think that that's possible, that that's what's happening here. That the God of the Bible is one who both fully knows us and fully loves us. That He's the God who intervenes, shows us our sin, and then, like it says in verse 13, He has put away our sin. He has taken away our sin through Jesus Christ. And if we really believe that, if we really believe that we can be fully known before God and yet fully loved by God, then what that would enable us to do is to make ourselves known more freely to Him. To make ourselves known more freely because we don't fear His rejection. We know that when we're known before God, on account of Christ, He embraces us and welcomes us rather than rejects us. You know, notice the sequence in this passage, verse 7, that after the revelation takes place, Uh, in verse 7, you are the man. Nathan says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, David. And he goes through a list of things. He says, I anointed you, verse 7. Also, I delivered you. And then in verse 8, it says, I gave you your master's house. I gave master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have kept giving. Notice that 
part of this memory jog exercise that's going on here is David being reminded, David, if you thought you had to find fulfillment outside of my design for you, you must not have remembered the nature of our relationship. That the nature of our relationship is I'm a giver to you. I'm not trying to keep things from you. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you this. I gave you that. I gave you this. What, why, why did you begin to think I was withholding good things from you? When the nature of our relationship has always been one of me giving you good things. And of course, that holds true for us, right? That when we think God's not giving us what we want or what we deserve, or or somehow He's withholding goodness from us, we just have to go back and look at our own lives and look at the Scripture and to be reminded that God's nature of God to us is as a giver who gives good things. And that when we remember that, that we remember that even though it may not make sense to us at all times, that even when we think He's withholding things, He's working all things together for our good God is a giver. He's not sparing in his generosity. And so God is out for our joy. And he reminds David that his very nature is to give. And if David had needed anything, God would not have withheld it from him. But once again, we come back to the fact that it is very difficult to believe that we can be fully known and fully loved. We typically think we have to choose that between those two things. I'm going to make myself known, but I know in doing so I I won't be loved. Or we say to ourselves, I want to be loved and thus I'm going to keep this part of my life hidden. I'm going to keep this in the darkness so these people in my life will continue to love me. But the good news of the Bible, the testimony of Scripture, is that God fully knows us and fully loves us. That He can say Even to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I fully know your crimes, but yet you are fully loved. He can say to Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? I fully know your crimes, Saul. But yet in that moment, he also demonstrates his own love for Saul by rescuing him and bringing him into his service. Even Romans 4, if we need further reassurance that God both fully knows us and fully loves us, Romans 4 verse 5 tells us that the one who does not work but trust God who justifies the wicked, their faith is counted to them as righteousness. That this morning what the Bible forces us to reckon with is are, are we, do we know ourselves Are we making ourselves known to God? He knows us. He knows our crimes and misdemeanors. But do we believe that because of His Son, Jesus Christ, because of His life, death, and resurrection, that we can embrace the good news that we are known, but yet He has taken away our sin, and that we are not going to die? I have a friend in North Carolina who's a generation older than me, who had a a very stable, long career with IBM. And that that was until the day he was laid off, until they went through a round of cutbacks, and he was one of the, the fallout of those cutbacks. And he had a wife and two teenage daughters at home when this happened. And it was devastating to him. It, it shook him to the core of his being because 
He said that as he drove home that day, that he had no idea how he was going to provide for this wife and two daughters. And so he went home, and actually, to your surprise, as many men do after such incidents, he decided to not tell his family right away. But instead, finally found time to sneak off to the attic in his house and sit in a rocking chair and just cry. Because he believed that what? If they know, will they still love me? Now, it was ridiculous because as the story goes on, they find out, obviously, soon thereafter, and of course, they love their dad. And if he had reason to believe anybody would love him in that moment, right? It would have been his wife and two daughters. If there was anybody in the world that he could make himself known to uh, and to tell him what was going on and know that they would embrace him and love him and walk alongside him, it was these people. But yet, even in that most intimate of relationships, that instinct kicks in. Can I be known and can I be loved? It's hard. It's not natural to us. It's counter to our nature. And that's why the Bible says that we have to confess with our mouth, right? That we actually believe this to be true. That Jesus is Lord. He knows all, but but he has taken away our sin with his sacrificial death and resurrection. That we confess with our mouth that he is Lord And that we can know in that moment that as we confess who we are and who he is, that we will be saved. We will be saved. You know, I mentioned earlier how I like to keep my golf memories, the good ones right up here and the other ones, which are more plentiful. There's a lot of room back here for my golf memories in the back of my mind. You know, what if you are a Christian and if you could get into the mind of God, Some of us fear that what really happens with God in relationship to our sins is that he simply has moved our sins from the front of his mind to the back of his mind. And that seems like somewhat good news, but the Bible says, no, that's not actually what happens. That's not what happens. That on account of Christ, that when we trust in him, that the Bible says, this is what happens, that I will remember your sins no more. That in other words, if you, could, if you could peek into the mind of God, you won't be able to find your sins there. That he actually expunges the record of our sins in his own mind. And so if you were to try to jog God's mind in relationship to your sin, that you would not be able to find it there. And this is really, really Good news, right? That this is really great news. That this, this is what God is like. That to know who God is is to know someone who gives, someone who forgives, and thankfully someone who chooses to forget our sins and to remove them as far as east is from the west. That's actually what the writer to the Hebrews brings out in Hebrews 8 verse 12. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews, explaining to people the nature of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, quotes the book of Isaiah and says, I have pardoned their iniquities and I remember their sins no more. And so what we praise God for is as we come to know who He is, we know there's a God who knows who we are, forgives us of our sins, and removes our sins from His very memory. By the way, I'll just, an aside for a quick moment here. Forgiveness does not free us from all consequences of our sins. And that's even brought out in this passage, right? 
David is forgiven, but there will be consequences he'll have to deal with. And that's true in life, right? You can know that you're fully forgiven by God on account of your sin, but you're going to have to still deal with consequences. That your boss can forgive you for lying and stealing, but there's probably going to be some broken trust there that's going to need to be repaired. You know, so this is true in the Bible and it continues to be true in life. But we can know even when there are consequences on account of our actions, that God's action remains certain for all of eternity, that we will not die. And so like I said earlier, if you want to come know who you are, you've got to spend time with God and His people. And the same is true if you want to do two things this week to come in to know the nature of God, spend time with Him and spend time with His people. Because as you spend time with Him, you'll, you'll find His long history of giving and forgiving. You'll find that as He revealed to Moses, He's a God who's abounding in loving kindness. Who loves, delight, cherishes pardoning iniquities. But also spend time with His people because sometimes it's hard for you to believe you're fully known and fully loved. And you're going to need people to tell you you're fully known and you're fully loved. You know... Sometimes we find ourselves needing one or the other of the the spectrums in this uh, passage. That we have moments of pride in our lives. That we need to hear God's thundering voice say to us, you are the man. But of course, some of you may be sitting here this morning with despair in your lives. And you need to hear those comforting words, you're not going to die. I'm not actually going to give you what you deserve. And of course, that's the beauty of of God's message here in the Bible is that he addresses both parts of of us because some some of us may struggle with the pride side of things. Some some may struggle with despair and there is hope. There is needful truth for both of us here this morning. Michael Horton, who is a Presbyterian theologian, was asked to summarize the gospel. And this is what he said. And I think it speaks, puts all this together so well. God should be your greatest fear. Yet there is no salvation from God's just judgment from anywhere else than God Himself. Only the same God who gives us fear, fills us with fear, is able to give us peace. If we are to escape His judgment, it is the result of the greatness in God's heart and not something in your own. His grace is greater than your sins. And His peace is greater than your fears. And so this morning, that's what the Bible wants us to reckon with. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that His peace is greater than our fears and His grace is greater than our sin? This morning, we need to repent of our hiding, of keeping certain things in the darkness. But even more, we need to believe that on account of Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection, the God you fear is a God who accepts you and counts you among His children forever. Pray with me. God, we thank You for good news. God, we thank You that sometimes we look in the mirror and we struggle with despair, sometimes with pride. That sometimes we, all we hear is the thundering voice of you are the man. And that you come to us and assure us that we're not going to have to pay the just punishment for our sins. 
And so, Father, this morning I pray for myself as I pray for these dear folks. Open our ears to hear your voice, just like David heard it so clearly that day through Nathan. Father, help us to believe that we can be fully known. And so because of that, let us come and confess our sins, believing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we pray also help us to believe that we are not partially loved, but that we are fully loved. That we can know as we sit here today, we can have the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, now and for all of eternity. And that even when death's dark shadow looms over us, that we can know that we will sup at your table forever. We praise you, God, this morning. That you jog our memories. But we praise you that when we jog yours. We find that you remember our sins no more. And so help us to trust, repent, and believe. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.